Okay, welcome back. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 4, please. So we are going to begin by reading the first um, three verses to get us going. So Daniel chapter 4. reads as follows, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me, how, his, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Lord, as we go through this passage of Scripture this morning, we trust that you will minister to us, that you will speak to us, and that you, as always, will have something for each one of us individually as well as for us as a church. For anyone listening to this teaching, we pray that you would bless it to our hearts and cause it to bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we started uh, right before Christmas going through the book of Daniel. Uh, We looked at chapter 1, and then chapter 1 is where uh, the nation of Israel, specifically uh, the southern kingdom, um, Judah, which contained Jerusalem, was taken captive by the Babylonian army. Um, So I know the dates and and the history of this don't always, uh, you know, excite us. But it's important from an archaeology point of view. It's also important from the point of view of helping us understand that the Bible is real, that these events took place, that they are real history. So in 605 B.C. is when the Babylonian army invaded um, Judah and Jerusalem and took Judah captive back to Babylon. We saw in chapter 1 that Daniel and his friends, his three friends, the four of them as young Jewish boys, probably around 15 or so years old, were taken captive back to Babylon. And the king wanted to school them and convert them and gave them Babylonian names and wanted them to learn to to read uh, in the Babylonian language. Uh, He wanted them to be trained up to become people who served in his court, many of these young men that were chosen for this um, serving in the king's court were young men who uh, had come from royalty. They were descendants of high-ranking officials and kings and other people in that area at that time. And so they were chosen for that specific reason. Part of that being that the king wanted to be able to say to them, my God is bigger than your God. My God beat your God by allowing me to come in and to take you captive. And so this sort of beat down of taking the, the choice young men, training them in the Babylonian ways and making them to serve at the court of the king was a bit of a, uh, you know, rub it in your face kind of a move. In chapter two, we uh, see at the open of that, we're about three years later, that Daniel and his friends and, and that, that class, if you will, had been through a three-year training program prescribed by the king. And in chapter two, A dream was given to King Nebuchadnezzar, and that dream was of a statue, and the statue was a head of gold, 
a chest and arms of silver, a belly of bronze, legs of iron, and feet with an admixture of clay and iron. And then Daniel was called upon to interpret this dream, and as he interpreted it, he explained to the king that the head was you, the head of the statue, the great Babylonian empire, and uh, the other um, parts of the statue represented different kingdoms that would come after. And so the king was told that God had a plan that didn't involve him, which was a real shock, and that uh, he wouldn't always be the head of gold, but he was at that point in time, the great Babylonian king and kingdom. And so uh, during the course of the interpretation of that dream, as Daniel was explaining to him, we begin to understand, if you go back and read chapter 2, that God was laying out for the king this idea that he was the king who served the Lord. He wasn't a king unto himself. And that God was ultimately in charge. And God determines who rules and who reigns and when they rule and when they reign. And so it was a lesson for the king. And at the end of that chapter 2, we see that the king sort of briefly, uh, faintly praises God and says, well, you know, we should all worship Daniel's God. But the king himself was not converted. He just was impressed by, by the arriving on the scene of this new God who seemed powerful and mighty and who could interpret dreams. And remember, in that chapter, the king either couldn't remember or he wouldn't uh, tell his wise men what the dream was. He says, you tell me the dream and its interpretation or I will kill you all. I will slaughter a lot of you. And so when Daniel could come and bring that, not only the dream, but the interpretation, uh, certainly it was a divine thing. Then we come to chapter 3, which is about uh, somewhere between 11 and 20 years after chapter 1, when they were taken captive. And remember, the king now sets up this statue that somewhat resembles the, the statue in the dream, except the statue is all gold. And in chapter 3, he begins to sort of declare himself and exalt himself, and it would almost seem that he's sort of thumbing his nose at God and at what God had said to him uh, many years earlier, in that he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be just the head of gold, but I am, I am the kingdom. I am the king. I'm the man. And so as he makes this decree, the people who were there who sort of hated these Jewish men who had been taken captive and given a spot at the table in the king's court, sort of rose up against them, were sort of following around, sort of, you know, uh, sniffing out everything that they did or didn't do. And the king, of course, had made a decree. When I play this, this song, this sound, everybody has to fall down and worship uh, my statue and, and declare homage to me. Remember, it, it appeared that Daniel was away on the king's business, sort of a type of... Uh, the, the church being raptured and that kind of a thing, and then the, the, the boys being put through the fires of tribulation. Nonetheless, they said they would not worship the king, they would not bow to the king, they wouldn't bow to his statue. And of course, that was the fiery furnace where they were thrown in. But remember, one like the Son of Man, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, was there in the fire with them, to walk with them, to rescue them. And even the men who threw them into the fire because the fire was so hot, they, the furnace was heated to seven times its normal temperature because the king was so enraged that these young boys whom he took and in his mind rescued and that he trained and invested in and they served in his court, that they themselves would not bow to him. He was so en enraged. 
And yet the Lord, the Lord Jesus, rescued them from the fire. And at the end of chapter 3, we see again the king kind of saying, well, this God's pretty powerful because he goes into the fire and he rescues his people. and We should worship this God. So this is kind of the course that the king has been on since when he encountered Judah, when he encountered these young men who believed in God and who truly had faith in God. And here we are in chapter 4 now, and we are now around between 20 and 30 years later after chapter 3. So now, if you add all this up, we are somewhere around probably 40, 45 years uh, that Daniel and his friends have been serving in the court of the king. So this is important to us to understand because there has been the passage of time, there has been the long haul of the witness of Daniel and his friends in the court of the king. And they've been loyal and they've been faithful. And they've served the king, but they've served the king within the confines of, of their faith in the one true and living God. And they were, were not compromising. And so there's this relationship that's developed with the king. And so the king, it would seem here in these first three verses, writes this little praise and he sends it out to his kingdom. And he says, hey, to all peoples, nations, and languages, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare to you the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me and how great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom's an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. And it seems like the king's finally come around. I mean, doesn't this sound like someone who believes in God? Someone who goes to church on Sunday and sings the songs and raises their hand and says, hey man, I love, I love God. But, now let's turn our attention to to verse 4, because what we're going to discover here as we go through this is that the Lord once again gives to Nebuchadnezzar a dream. So um, we're going to take a a few minutes here because I think it's important, and we're going to read from verse 4 all the way through the end so you can understand what's happening. I don't think this is the kind of passage that allows us to kind of just, you know, for me to teach through it without you having some context. So let's pick it up in verse 4, and let's continue to read and understand what happened in light of all that background that I've just given you. So in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, Because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream and uh, that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions 
of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the grass of the earth, of the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of an animal. Let seven times or seven years pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. His thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and on whose branches the birds of the heaven had their habitation. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For in your greatness, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the, tw- of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, so seven years have passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. Quite the story, isn't it? And I hope that by just reading through that, you understand that this is not just something for the king. There's so much here for us, but as we work our way through it, we see here back in verse 4, after the king sort of made this, this declaration about God, that it, it seems that he still is holding on to his other gods. So he's sort of a polytheist, meaning he believes in his other gods, but he's starting to sort of, you know, believe in the one true and living God, but he hasn't fully converted. He hasn't fully given his heart to the Lord. In verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. So we'll look at some verses later that talk about pride, but what we see here is a false peace, a false sense of security. The king was just enjoying the rest of his house and walking around. And, you know, earlier on when we gave some of the history of Babylon, we talked about how, uh, how many miles the, the uh, wall around the city was in circumference. It was so wide that you could have chariot races on the top, eight abreast. Uh, the, the wall was so tall that it was literally impenetrable. Uh, when we talk about the seven wonders of the world, and you can certainly go look those up, uh, not listed on there, but some believe should have been listed, but was, is what was called the Gardens of Babylon. And uh, the king had taken time to develop these elaborate gardens with all sorts of species of plants. And when, you know, when people would visit the city, that would be one of the places they would go. And so the king had built all of these things. And so he's walking around enjoying his creation. And you can, so you can begin to see how he's exalted himself. And how pride has puffed him up. Now, I would call to your attention, and you can write this down, we're not going to go there. But in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28 are the two places that record what happened in heaven when Satan rose up against God. 
And Satan said, I will be like the Most High. And he had uh, many I am statements, seven, I believe, I am statements of how he would be like God. And then, of course, he was cast out of heaven. And then we find out in the book of Revelation that when he was cast out of heaven, that he took a third of the angelic host with him. And these became his emissaries, his demons. But the reason Satan or Lucifer, the son of the morning or the son of the morning star, as he was called, was cast out of heaven was because of the sin of pride. Now, pride is something that we read about. We're, we're going to talk about it here today a little bit more. But it's something that we can rarely see in ourselves, but we can easily identify in others. Do we agree on that? It's easy to see when someone is puffed up with pride or acting in a prideful manner. But the truth of the matter is, because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, that the root of all sin is the sin of pride. And so we're going to see the the sin of pride, the attitude of pride, deeply woven into the heart and the soul of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it would seem here, if we could zoom out and come up to sort of a heavenly level and look down on King Nebuchadnezzar, it would seem that God and his, his, his generosity and his grace and his mercy is working to get this pride out of the king. Now, it's interesting to me that God offers himself, he offers salvation, he offers who he is to all mankind so freely. And we know from the gospel, we know from the word of God that God is the pursuer. God is the one who is coming after mankind. He is the hound of heaven. God is is the one who is putting it out there. He's offering it to us, the free gift of eternal life and salvation. And yet we are the responder. God is always the initiator. Man is always the responder. But rarely do we see these times where God is so relentlessly pursuing a person as he is here with King Nebuchadnezzar. So as we continue on in verse five, I had this dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. This was the same thing that happened before in chapter two. This dream troubled him to to no end. So now he's having another dream. Obviously God is giving him these dreams to communicate to him And then he didn't know what to do, so he called the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Now, this is the same worthless group of people that he called to him before, back in chapter 2, many, many years earlier. Uh, They were unable then to bring him any help whatsoever. And you would think, you would hope, after what you read in chapter 2, and the fact that they were not able, as men of the world, as men who were probably soothsayers, who were you know, magicians who were trying to divine things from, you know, tarot cards and tea leaves and all of that kind of stuff, that they were unable and incapable of advising the king. Yet the king has kept them around in his court. And he calls this same group of people and he says, can you tell me? And it says at the end of verse seven, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. And there's some question there as to whether they were able to interpret the dream or they, they were able, but they didn't want to tell the king what it meant. And I think that's actually the more likely intent here because it says they did not make known to me its interpretation. It's as if they knew, but they wouldn't tell him that they were afraid to bring the bad news to the king. So in verse eight, what does he do? He calls the one man he truly trusts, Daniel. And notice what he says in verse eight according to the name of my God. And then it says, in him is the spirit of the holy God. 
And so he recognizes that there is something different about Daniel. And remember, Daniel's been with him for something north of 40 years at this point. So Daniel's character is well known to the king. They, they've had a relationship over this 40 plus year period of time. And to just stop and pause for a minute, you know if you've had that kind of a relationship with anybody over a long period of time, I mean, you know each other, right? You know each other very well. You know the character. You know how they're almost, what they're going to say before they say it. <clears throat> and so, so the, <clears throat> the king knows that Daniel is a man, and this is one of those rare times in the Old Testament where we see a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Daniel is filled with the Spirit, and the king has seen this Spirit-filled man who has been in his presence over the course of these many years. And he's been impressed with God through this man, but the king has never been impressed enough with God himself to have bowed his knee and submitted and surrendered to the Lord. So we had that previous dream many years earlier in chapter 2. We've had all these experiences in between. We had the fiery furnace and all of that. And now we have the Lord again speaking to the king because here he is all these years later still not getting it, still not getting the point, still allowing his pride to, to overrule his judgment and to cause him to act in ways that are not honoring God. And so he says in verse 9, Belteshazzar or Daniel, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. In other words, his character, right? He's calm, cool, and collected. He's a man who's ruled by the spirit and not by the flesh. No secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And these were the visions, so he tells the story that now, rather than his kingdom being depicted like um, a statue, now his kingdom is is being depicted like a a tree. Think of like a sequoia, a giant tree that reaches to the heavens, jack and the beanstalk, if you will. And this tree is so great, and its canopy reaches out so far that, you know, the picture that's painted here is that so much of the earth is actually dependent on Babylon for commerce. Now, let me pause here and say something. Babylon is going to be resurrected in the book of Revelation. And all of these things that are being said here about Babylon are going to pull forward when we get to the book of Revelation. And we're going to understand that Babylon will once again be restored as a kingdom and will, will be able to somehow provide for the world and it might become even the center for the Antichrist. So back to our story, that this tree was so great, its height reached to the heavens, it could be seen to the ends of the earth, its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. So Babylon served food to much of the, the, the kingdom as well as the world, it says all of the earth. Uh, the beasts of the field found shade under it, so that would be protection and provision, The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Incredibly profitable. uh, uh, And I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one. And this seems to be referring to an angel, a holy one coming down out of heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, and here's the word that the angel brought from the throne of God, chop down the tree. 
cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. So just as in the dream in chapter 2, where he was told through that dream that his kingdom would not be forever, and that there would be others who would come afterwards and take the kingdom from him, and that he would have a time where he would rule, and then he would pass on, and that his kingdom would be given over. In fact, it would be defeated. So the same message is effectively being given here through the analogy or the illustration of a tree. And when the angel says, cut down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit, you get the sense that this is a devastating kind of blow. Something happens that just rocks the kingdom to its core. The tree is cut off, and its influence, and its fruit, and its provision, and all those things are completely stripped away. And in this is a picture of God stripping away this man's pride. Now we all have pride, so there's lessons in here for us. Verse 15, nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Interesting, a similar uh, imagery from the dream in chapter 2, although we're not told what that means, but it would seem like it was either holding the stump intact so that it doesn't rot or something. We're not told exactly the significance of Uh, the band going around the stump. Uh, But in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. So he's now saying, what's going to happen to the king? And this is extreme. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. In other words, he's describing a condition where King Nebuchadnezzar is literally going to lose his mind. And he's going to believe that he's a beast, like an ox. And he's going to live out in nature for seven years as a beast. His hair is going to, going to grow long like feathers. His nails on his feet and his hands are going to grow, it says, to be like eagle's claws. So you get this sort of hideous description of what this man is going to become like. And notice it says in verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers, the the angels, those who come from heaven, the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowest of men. So the king is being told directly in the dream that, that this is what's happening, right? This decision comes from heaven. And that God is doing this thing. And it's all to prove a point that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Now, we need to learn this lesson. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to learn this lesson. God sits on his throne. There's a beautiful proverb that says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like a stream, he turns it whichever way he wishes. And, and I watch people all the time, all of us, uh, believer and unbeliever alike. Something happens, something comes along in our life, something doesn't go the way we want it to go, the way we had planned it out. 
some unexpected thing comes into our life and costs us a lot of money or whatever it is and we get all upset about that and we shake our fist and pound the table and yet we forget the very thing that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten which is that there's a God in heaven orchestrating all of these things. And so God is going to take this man, King Nebuchadnezzar, to a deep, dark place. And, and I, I've got a few examples, but, you know, God does this. He's done this many times with people. And here's something for us to understand when we're going through something and when there's a hard lesson in our lives and things aren't going well and disasters and catastrophes are happening. Or things like, and I know this is a passionate thing for a lot of people, we watch what's, what happens with elections. <laughs> and, and, and we all know something funny is going on. And yet we watch it and we're angry about it, but we can't do anything about it. What can we do about what's happening in Arizona? Right? We look at these things and we're like, well, God, what's happening? Right? Now here's the flip side of that. When we watch other people go through something, and it happens all the time, we see family members who don't know God, they're not following God, they're making bad decisions, bad financial decisions, whatever it may be, and we want to rush in and we want to help them, right? Oh God, I just, I I hurt so much, I want to help them here, here's some money or here's some food or, you know, whatever it is, we just want to get involved and help out and we should be compassionate and gracious, absolutely, however... Sometimes we mess with God's work in someone else's life by wanting to rescue them, or if I may use a charged term, to enable them by helping them. And sometimes, if we pray about these things, I believe we'll hear from the Lord, you need to take a step back and just let God have his way in the situation. And so no doubt Daniel here, Having served this king for more than 40 years, I believe that as he is called into the situation and he hears the dream, I believe his heart is broken for the king. And he's like, I don't want you to have to go through this. And I now know why the other guys didn't want to tell you. But I've got to come and tell you. So God, verse 17, he rules in the kingdom of men. He gives it to whomever he will. And he sets over it the lowest of men. Does this verse not apply to, I'm sorry, to our current situation, to our current president? Uh, You know, God does things that I don't understand. This is a solemn declaration that God and God alone is in control of the universe. He's in control of the affairs of men. God controls the weather. You know what happened two weeks ago? Southwest imploded. This snowstorm blew through. People were stranded all over the country. Nations, governments, events, people's lives, the outcomes of things of our own plans that are blown up, good and evil, you know, good being put down, evil being exalted. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for, for the third time, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. I want you to tell me. I want to hear the truth. Give it to me. So the king recognized this filling of the spirit in Daniel. And I just want to make application here to you and to me. God has placed you and me where we are for a purpose, for a reason. 
And I hope and I pray that you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit like Daniel was. So that people would, would come and say, hey, you know, something's different about you. Maybe they have been given enough understanding to say, seems like the Holy Spirit's in you. Can you help me? So Daniel begins to work through this dream in verse 19. He's astonished. His thoughts trouble him because he begins to realize what this means and what it talks about. Remember, he's got this long history. He's interpreted other dreams for the king. And he's got a challenge before him. Do I give the king the truth? Or do I back soft pedal it? Do I back off a little bit? Do I, do I express it in sort of nebulous principles? Or do I just tell him straight up what's happening? And he realizes he's got, to, he's got to be honest. So in verse 20, the tree you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all, by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant. So he just walks through all of that and he says, verse 22, it is you, O king. That tree is you. You who have grown strong and become strong for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Now, what I see when I read that here is pride, pride, pride. Remember in chapter 3 when he did the statue and he took the dream that God had given him, but he made it all of gold. It's like he's trying to cheat fate in a sense. God had spoken and said, this is the way it's going to be. And it's like he's kicking against the goads and saying to the Lord, no, it's not. I can beat this. But David, excuse me, David, Daniel is saying here to him the truth that this is speaking of you. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King. Here it is. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you. And here's the point, O King. Till you know. That the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. There's the issue of pride in his heart. He would not accept that God truly rules and reigns. And as the Lord had told him back in chapter 2 in that dream of the statue, you know, king, you serve me. You're a king because I made you a king. Now, to me, this applies directly to us. Maybe you and I are not kings and princes and all of that. But who we are, where we are, the things we have, the homes that we've been privileged to be raised in, the the ways that God has blessed us materially and financially and spiritually and in every other way. Do we know, do we recognize, do we practice what it says here in verse 25 That the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Do we realize God is in control? My plans are not in control. 
Whatever I do, whatever plans I make, it doesn't say we can't make plans. But like James tells us, he says, instead of saying, hey, today or tomorrow we'll go to this and such and such a place and, and make a profit and do this or that, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. All of our plans are made with an open hand. They're written in pencil, not ink. Remember even our Lord Jesus himself there in the garden on the night before his crucifixion, Peter, James, and John there, the rest of the disciples a little further away. They're sleeping. He's praying. He's sweating great drops of blood. And as he's praying to his Father in heaven, knowing that he is the Lamb of God, is about to fulfill his mission and his calling. He's praying and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Even in the humanity of Jesus, he lays it down before God. And he says, Lord, what do you want to do with all this stuff? I would prefer not to go down this path that it seems that you're taking me down. But if that's the path you want me to walk, then I will walk it. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he wishes. God is sovereign. He has the final say in everything. And I think you would agree with me that these are extreme circumstances for God to take a person through to get them to the place that they will bend the knee and bow before God, right? I mean, would you like this to be you? But God has done other things like this. Remember Jonah, He's often called the reluctant prophet. God said, Jonah, you're my man, you're my prophet. I want you to go preach to Nineveh. He's like, nope, not going to do it, Lord. Oh, yeah, you are. No, you're not. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. And you know the story. Jonah just said, I'm going in the opposite direction. He hightailed it a thousand miles in the opposite direction, thinking he could defeat God. This is pride. He gets on a ship, and God sends the ship into a terrible storm. And the men on the ship who are not God-fearing men, but who are wise enough to say, somebody, the God somewhere is not happy with us and we need to figure out what's going on because obviously this is not a normal storm. And then they cast lots and it falls on Jonah. He's like, yeah, it's me. Just throw me overboard. So remember now, he's a thousand miles in the wrong direction. He went west. God told him to go east. When he gets thrown overboard, what happens? A great fish is there to say, taxi? Did you call for a taxi? And God takes him all the way. It's fascinating to look at it on a map, what God did. And he takes him all the way around on this amazing journey and barfs him up on the beach at the foot of the town where God told him to go. And he says, now get your tail in there and do what I told you to do. That's pretty extreme. What about Balaam and the donkey? God used a donkey, a jackass, to speak to a man the things that he had already told him, to get his attention. That's pretty extreme. What about the Apostle Paul? Shaking his fist at God, stoning Christians, carrying out his version of justice. And what does God do about Noon and on the road to Damascus, this bright light strikes him down. He's blind. He hears a voice from heaven. Who art thou, Lord? All of a sudden he realizes, uh, 
this sounds like God. And remember what God did. He took him into the, to the town and for three days he was blind and he sat in seclusion, probably just like, what does all this mean? His whole head got rearranged. His understanding of God was brought to a, a, a precipice. And in that moment, God spoke to him and he became probably, in a sense, one of the greatest apostles that there ever was because of what God did in and through his life. What about Peter? Peter had to go up on a roof. God had to speak to him in a dream. Turn him around, take him to a Gentile's house. Violate everything he thought was sacred. It's the the, the sense of giving him a new paradigm about who God is and how he wants to operate. And so these are the kinds of things that God does and he's doing it in what I believe may be the most extreme case here in the, the case of King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think the question that begs to be asked here. Uh, is, is simply this, you know, is this, are these the kinds of things it takes for God to get my attention? To get me to realize one simple thing, he's God and I'm not. Or will I allow my pride to continue to drive and direct my life? Verse 26, and inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree of your, your kingdom shall be assured to you. Look at the grace of God. He's saying this picture here, this stump is a picture that God is going to hold your job. You're going to go on hiatus for seven years. We are, we're not even told who, you know, who ran the kingdom. But we're going to hold your, your spot here. When you come back, you're still going to have a place. You're still going to be a king. And your kingdom shall be assured to you, again, look at verse 26, after you come to know that heaven rules. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so here's the message to King Nebuchadnezzar from the throne of heaven. Be humble or be humbled. Therefore, O king, verse 27, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Translation, this is a call to repentance. This is an opportunity being given to the king before the judgment of God is executed upon his life. Never let it be said that God isn't gracious, that he isn't merciful, that he isn't the God of second chances. He, in fact, gives King Nebuchadnezzar a whole year to repent. A whole year. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28. By the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, hadn't repented knew all these things. The interpretation of the dream was exceedingly clear. Daniel, his friend, his loyal servant, had given him the word, didn't mince words. The king walking around said in verse 30, is, this, is not this great Babylon that I have built 
a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. I mean, he's so puffed up with pride. You probably know these verses out of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. By pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. Wow. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. And finally in Proverbs 29, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So again, something that we see so easily in others, but so rarely are able to identify within ourselves. What are some of the ways that pride shows itself? And and this hurts. So forgive me. There are many ways. I was just thinking about it for, for myself and for the 21st century church and, you know, where we are in, in, in life. And, you know, so what are the, some of the ways that pride shows itself? Remember that pride says, I don't need God. Pride says God's not in charge. He's not in control. Prayerlessness, reading the Bible, Honoring godly relationships, especially in the church, you know, making, um, worshiping the Lord with the saints a priority, abiding in Christ, depending upon Him, trusting Him. And there are so many. But you see, these things, while we may think I'm just too busy or, or whatever, or this is not a priority, or when I read the Bible, I don't get anything out of it, whatever it may be, I believe these are forms of pride where we don't believe that God will meet with us when we open his word, or when we set aside time to pray that God will actually commune with us. Or maybe we're thinking he might tell me something I don't want to hear, so if I don't ask, he won't tell. And so this situation here with King Nebuchadnezzar is God's divine timing. At just the right moment, he's given him a year of opportunity But he didn't respond in a reasonable time frame, verse 31. But while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Done. This dream will be executed upon you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you. Now, when I think about going through a trial... And I'm sure we've all been through them. Sometimes trials of of minutes and hours seem like an eternity. Or sometimes, you know, we get sick and we're sick for a couple of weeks or whatever it might be. And we just think, this is terrible. Seven years? Seven years? And he says here in verse 32, they shall make you eat grass like an oxen and seven times shall pass over you. Again, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. I think this is the third time that God has said this to him. Until you know that the Most High rules, until you know that God is God. 
So when I think about the extremity of the situation that God has to bring into this man's life just so he can learn one simple point, that God is God and you're not. That God is sovereign. That he rules over the affairs of men. And that very hour, verse 33 was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. So he was living out in the field as a man. He's been driven mad. He's acting and thinking like he's an ox. He's just completely lost his marbles. And yet this seems to be a God-given, God-imposed illness upon this man so that he thinks he's an ox. And he's just living in the field, doing these things for seven years. And so between verse 33 and 34, you see there's seven years. Seven years have passed. He's been out there living it. And this will give new meaning to living the dream. Right? All right? Hopefully I ruined that for you. Praise the Lord. Verse 34, and at the end of the time... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So finally, right? There's a moment of clarity in his life. And my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. I think finally, Nebuchadnezzar's lip service and his partial beliefs have been solidified. He's come to finally realize who God is. And I believe we're going to see him in heaven. He's going to be a brother based on what happens here. He's finally restored. He finally got the point and the extremity of what God had to take him through just so he could learn that God is God. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Don't we need to learn this? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom and my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my nobles resorted to me and I was restored to my kingdom and my excellent majesty was added to me. I mean, God said, we're, we're going to hold your job for seven years. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, not myself, all of whose works are truth, his ways are justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Boy, did he learn that lesson, right? So the moral of the story the lesson from King Nebuchadnezzar is be humble or be humbled. And I pray that this is something that we all learn today, that we learn from his mistake. I mean, in the New Testament, it says that all of these things were written and done that we might learn. And I, I hope and pray none of us have to go to the place that Nebuchadnezzar went to where we say, Go ahead. The flip side of this, because see, Nebuchadnezzar was, was going through something that God submitted to. Remember, there were tw- there's twice in the New Testament where Paul said of people who had thumbed their nose at God and in pride were rising up against him. Twice, Paul said, commit them to Satan. 
in hopes that they might learn the lesson. This was a God-imposed, God-given lesson. What about a lesson where you gotta be committed to Satan to go learn a lesson? I mean, that's, that's pretty rough. And so I pray that we don't have to go down that path or this path, but that we can be wise enough and spirit-filled enough to realize that what's being given to us here in Daniel chapter four is for our instruction, for our learning. Why? For one very simple reason, because God loves us. All of this was done, not because God likes to be like a cat playing with a mouse, but because God loves us and he wants us to worship him. He wants us to love him. He wants us to honor him. And so if we will but do that, if we will bend the knee and honor the Lord, we won't have to go through any of this. Amen. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your truth. And I pray that we will learn these things. God, I also pray that if there are any here or online listening who have never come to know you, I pray that today would be the day that they would bend their knee and, and, and say, Lord, I want to follow you. Lord, I love you. Lord, I want to be forgiven. Uh, Lord, I give you my life. I don't want to go through the things that Nebuchadnezzar or Balaam or, or Jonah or who else went through. I want to walk in humility before you. And I pray that this morning, if that's the case, if there's someone here or listening who's resonating with that, that, then that right now they would just reach out to you in prayer and say, Lord, save me. And Lord, you will. And if you're doing that this morning, please let us know so we can pray for you and give you a Bible and support and encourage you. Lord, for those of us this morning who have been sort of moved and pricked by these things, we know you, but we realize that perhaps we've been subtly living in pride. You've given us a mirror this morning. Then God, just as the king was given that opportunity to repent, so we seize that opportunity this morning for ourselves. And we humble ourselves before you and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Lord, I want to make those course corrections here at the beginning of this year. And I want to follow you and I want to walk in honor before you. Lord, I just want to enjoy your presence and I want to read your word and, and pray and seek your face. And Lord, draw from you, glean from you, be in your presence and be changed. And that transformation, and as Jesus said when he prayed in John 17, uh, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lord, that that would be where we are. So we thank you for these things. We thank you for this amazing passage of scripture and we thank you for teaching us. Lord, may we believe and receive and follow all that you've given to us today in Jesus' name, amen.